I want you to open your Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 26. So digging wells. Thank God for the rain. Water is essential, right? I, I won't tell you how much water I used last month because my trees got in so much distress. I was afraid I was going to uh, maybe lose one or two, so I watered. Now, yeah, they probably would have made it through, but uh, if that's what it took for God to send the rain for me to water my trees, then that's all right. And now how it always works, somebody said, I'm going to wash my car, maybe it will rain. But water is essential for life. We can't live without it. Without water, there is no life. But as vital as water is for life, our need for God is by far our greatest need to have life and for life to be sustained. We do not fully understand how dependent and how desperate we are for God and how desperate we would be without God. But it is not difficult to understand how desperate we would become without water. Without fresh water, our priorities would change quickly and without hesitation as a matter of life or death. And this is true because we all know that we can't live without water. God is our source of life in every way. Jesus Christ is the only hope that we have in life or in death. He is the source of life. He is the fountain of living water. This is what he is called in the scripture. It is what he called himself. Without him, we have no hope. To know him and to thirst for him and to drink of him is to find and know and taste eternal life. It is to be satisfied and sustained and to never thirst again. This is what Jesus told the woman when he had the conversation with her at the well, the Samaritan woman. Now this brings me to our text, Genesis chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. It says, then Isaac, departed from the, then Isaac departed there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father had called them. Well, Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless your word today, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would plant this gospel into the good soil of our hearts, that you would bring the increase, you would bring the harvest, and you would bring it for your glory, that your church, your people, would give witness to you in this earth, in this place, in this city, that you would be glorified through your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I read you two verses. There's a backstory here, as there always is in the scripture. 
So what had happened, Isaac had gone down and he was living among the Philistines and God blessed him. And God blessed him so abundantly and Isaac and his people became so large and so powerful, the Philistines became fearful. And Abimelech says, hey, you guys are too much, so you need to leave. And so Isaac departs from the place where he was living, and he pitches his tent in the valley of Gerar. So he moved to this valley. He's dwelling there, but he discovers that the Philistines had stopped up and filled in and covered up all the wells. In short, there was no water. Now, Isaac has got thousands upon thousands of animals, and he's got servants. He's got a large household and a large company of people, and he can't live without water. And he gets to this valley, and he discovers that all the wells are plugged up and filled in. So what did Isaac do? The scripture says, Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. The need for water was great. Now, I want you to notice what Isaac didn't do. Isaac didn't try to dig new wells. Isaac didn't try to find new and different sources of water. The water was there, and Isaac knew where the water was. The problem was not a lack of water. The problem was that the wells had been stopped up. They had been filled in by the Philistines, the enemies of God. And Isaac had to dig again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. It was true for Isaac in his day. It is true for us in our day today. The problems we have today are not new. I hear this all the time. We're living in times like never before. Well, that's true in one sense because it's never been November or uh, September 9th, 2018 before. It's never been this day before. But the problems of this day, I promise you, have existed before. They've long existed. So the problems we have today are not new. They're not due to new circumstances. The same problems and the same distractions have always been here. They've just existed in different forms. The Philistines, the enemies of God, are still at work stopping up, filling in, and covering over the wells of water dug by our fathers that came before us. And we don't need to go dig new wells. We don't need to go find new sources of water and life. No, we need to go back to the wells that were dug by our fathers. We need to unstop them dig them out, uncover them, and tap into the water that is there. God remains the same. Man remains the same. The problem remains the same. You hear me, church? God is not changed. Man is not changed. And the problem has not changed. The solution to the problem remains the same. The writer of Hebrew puts it this way, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
God is the same, man is the same, the problem is the same, and the solution to the problem is the same. The solution to the problem is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has not changed. Man fundamentally has not changed. Now, I realize when Isaac was redigging those wells, he didn't have an iPhone. He couldn't Google to find out the best, most efficient method of redigging a well. You guys ever done that? Maybe not for digging a well, but what's the first thing you do when you got to fix something now? You go to Google. You Google it. And guess what? When you Google it, there's a YouTube video there showing you exactly what you need to do. It's amazing. It's, it's a miracle. It really is. Thank God. I mean, it's the grace of God. You know how much time God is saving you by giving you that gift? But listen, people now say, well, there's all kinds of problems that come now. We got social media and we got Facebook. It's of the devil and blah, 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 blah. Well, the devil may use it, but guess what? So does God. And our problem isn't we've got new circumstances and new technology, new things that have created problems that have never existed before. No, the problems are the same. They just come wrapped in different packages. Do you realize the lies of the enemy are not new? It's the same devil spouting the same lie, playing the same tricks, deceiving men in the same ways. The reason it works generation after generation after generation is because men continue to be born in sin. That's why you must be born again. It's exactly why Jesus says this in John 3. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. The reason history repeats itself, the reason men don't learn from past sin is because new generations of sinful men are born with the same lie, with the same sin that fell into them when our father Adam sinned and fell into sin. So we are born in the image of our father Adam. We're born in sin and in death. That is our nature. We don't have to teach our children how to sin. You guys realize that, right? It comes naturally because they are natural born sinners. Oh, Pastor Jeff, don't say that about those cute little babies. No, they are natural born sinners. And the Bible gives us the remedy Spare not the rod. It doesn't say abuse your children. It says discipline your children. This is not a sermon about children. But children are wonderful examples and wonderful pictures of reality and truth, aren't they? The problem's not different. It's the same problem, and the solution is the same. Think about this. Jesus lived a perfect life, but what happened? People spoke ill of him. People rejected him, and ultimately, men crucified him and killed him, murdered him. Perfect, loving Jesus, they murdered him because they hated him. And we think somehow it's going to be different for us. So the church 
in her wisdom decides, well, we'll just compromise. We'll soften our stance on this sin and we'll soften our stance on that sin. And you know what? I think, I think it's probably safe to say that that's not even a sin anymore. That was, that was back in the old days. We're living in a new day, in a new time, with new values. And if we just pretend like none of that sin stuff exists anymore, then we'll all get along together and God will be glorified. Eh, wrong, 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 wrong. That's not how it works. If they did what they did to Jesus, we should expect nothing less from the same world that hated Jesus. Hell and the devil have always been against the church. The world has always hated the gospel and has never been short on excuses to ignore it, reject it, or persecute it. Study after study is done and the results are the same. The world has issues with a biblical brand of Christianity. It doesn't have issues with some brands of what is called Christianity, but you guys do realize that not everything that calls itself a Christian is a Christian, right? Jesus said it this way, you will know them by their fruits. And many do not realize that there is no other form of true Christianity and true faith other than the biblical brand. The world has never been at a loss to find an excuse not to go to church and listen to the preaching of the gospel. This is what we're, I was in a meeting the other day with a group of pastors. And one of the pastors said that their church is going to abandon Sunday morning altogether because people are just too busy on Sunday morning. Now, the brother who is saying this, I know him, and I love him, and I have no doubt about his faith, and he's not actually planning the church. He's helping this pastor plant the church, and it's not even a church here. It's a church in Austin. But this is their solution. We're going to abandon Sunday morning. We're going to go to Sunday night because millennial, I mean Saturday night, because millennials will be more prone to come to church on Saturday night because they're too busy on Friday nights because they're going out. And, and Saturday morning, they're going to sleep in. So Saturday night is our best shot at capturing millennials because they like to sleep late on Sunday morning or go to the lake or mow the yard or do whatever. Do you realize how wrong that is? Do you realize how wrong that is? Because, first of all, the whole premise of what they're doing is wrong. You realize this is not an evangelistic meeting we're having here today. I, I, I don't know if you are all saved, but I am talking to all of you as if you are saved. The point of us being here today is not for me to convince you to believe in Jesus, my assumption is you're here because you do believe in Jesus. So I'm going to preach the gospel to you and the gospel is going to change you and transform you and equip you 
for the work of ministry. It's your job, church. It's all of our jobs to go out into the world. And that's where we minister to those people who won't come to church on Sunday morning. You know why they won't come to church on Sunday morning? Because they, they need a heart transformation. They don't know they need to come. They don't want to come. So the, the solution is not for the church to make God more appealing to the world. The job of the church is to be equipped to go out and be salt and light and preach the gospel through our words and through our living, through our lives, so that men's hearts will be changed and then they too will come and be equipped and go and do the same. Can you imagine what would have happened if 2,000 years ago the church said, hey guys, listen, Sunday morning's not working. I think we need to do a Saturday night. If you actually read the Bible, they didn't meet one day a week. It said they met every day. They were constantly ministering, studying the word. But they had a day. It was the day. It was the Lord's day. It was the day of the Lord's resurrection that came to be the day that the church gathered together to worship together. That day was not the evangelistic meeting day. That was the equipping day, the worshiping day. And then they were to go back out into the world to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel. It's no use saying, let us pray for revival. Because there's a work that has to be done before we get there. We must clear out the rubbish and unstop the wells that have been covered over by the enemies of God. This is our present task that must be done. If we truly desire to see revival or reformation, we must dig again the wells dug by our fathers. If we say, well, that's for someone else to do. I'll join the revival when it comes, then it will never come. Because if we're not going to be the people that begin the work of digging out, then who's going to do it? No one's going to do it for Christ's fellowship if Christ's fellowship does not do it for herself. Just like there was no one that was going to come and dig out those wells for Isaac if Isaac and his people didn't do it for themselves. Isaac didn't sit there and say, oh God, can you just magically make this water come out of this well? You know what Isaac had to do? Isaac had to go get in the dirt and actually dig out those wells. Why do we think that it's going to be any different in our day? It's not going to be. The work of the Philistines is to stop up, fill in, and cover over the truth of God. So what are the truths that the work of the Philistines are covering up? There are three main truths that I want to point out to you that men greatly desire to cover up. The first is this, the truth of the sovereign transcendent God who is active in his creation. God is sovereign. He is transcendent over all. He is the God who acts and intervenes and erupts into the history of the church, into the lives of individuals, and into the affairs of men. God is not passive. God is active. God did not, he's, listen, deism became a thing back in the, in the 18th, 17th and 18th century. 
And it was this idea that, yes, there's a creator, but what God did, he created everything and he just kind of set it in motion and then he just decided he was going to step back and whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. That is not the God the Bible presents. Jesus said, not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from your father's knowledge. Is that what Jesus said? No, it's not what he said. See, I changed one little word, and that one little change totally changes the idea of that scripture. No, what Jesus said was, not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from your father's will. Now, if a sparrow can fall to the ground, a sparrow can fall to the ground with God's knowledge, but God could be back there going, well, I see that sparrow. He just fell. Too bad. Poor sparrow. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't paint the picture of a deistic God who's hands off, passive, watching his creation spin out of control. No, Jesus gave us a picture of a God who's absolutely in control of the details, down to the sparrow falling to the ground. Or how many hairs exist on your head? They're numbered, the Bible says. Or cast the lot in the lap. But God determines the outcome every time, Proverbs 16.33. Why would God tell us these things? Because he's revealing to us who he is. He's not a passive God who doesn't know the future, who doesn't just have knowledge. He is the God who is actively involved, sovereign, transcendent over everything. And that should give us great peace and great comfort because that's who he is. But men don't like that. They don't want to believe in a God like that. You know why? Because it takes control away from them. Because men, fundamentally, it happened in the garden. Men fundamentally want to be God. Man tried to be God, and it didn't work. That idea of this passive God is a God who is banished into his own eternity, and man takes center sage, and it's man's thoughts about God that matter. Not God's thoughts about man. You see this today in everything. It's all about man's thoughts concerning God. And we've got philosophers and, and, and people who are reasoning to death and, and, and exploring and trying to find the source of truth. We're even looking, we're splitting atoms trying to find the God particle. How did all this come about? What we should be concerned about is not man's thoughts toward God. We should be concerned about God's thoughts toward us. Because if you believe your Bible, how did this all begin? It was in our first Sunday school lesson today. How did all this begin? In the beginning, God created. Without God initiating, without God creating, we don't have this conversation Without God initiating, without God having a thought toward man, man could have no thought toward God. So the most important thing is not our thoughts toward God, it's us understanding God's thoughts toward us. 
The second is this. The second truth that the enemies of God like to cover up is the authority of the Bible. Those who have stopped up the wells of water do not believe in revelation. They do not believe in inspiration. They do not believe that God has revealed himself in the inspired words recorded and assembled for us in what we call the Bible. These enemies do not believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. They don't trust in revelation. They trust in reason. Truth is what we search for. Through their reason and understanding and speculation... This is what they say. Truth is what we are searching for. And they're searching for it through their reason, through their understanding, through their speculation. And it's all rooted in human wisdom. There's, there is man searching for God through his human faculties, depending upon his human wisdom, all the while rejecting the divine revelation of truth. Well, we can't, we can't believe this Bible because it was written by men. So let man tell you what you should believe. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We're going to reject the Bible because we, we say it was written by men, yet we're going to let men tell us what we should believe and what we should think. Do you realize how, I mean, that doesn't even make good sense. But yet people do that and they buy that and they think it sounds so wise and it's so smart and it's so intellectual and it's so above you, you poor people who believe in this mythical God. Let man tell you what to believe. He's much more dependable than God is. In fact, God is just a creation of man. Oh, so you want me to trust in someone who created this mythical figure? That you're telling me doesn't exist? But yet you want me to trust in the man who was, that doesn't make sense. But see, that's why the scripture says that God is not the author of confusion. You know who is? The devil is the author of confusion. And if you just really stop and think about what man is telling you to do, it is very confusing. My advice to you is to go back to the Bible. Truth is what is recorded for us here. The Bible does not present mankind looking for God, but God looking for man. And God revealing himself to man. It was God who created man. The whole emphasis today is upon man's search for God as if God had never revealed himself at all. I mean... We've got Bibles galore and, and they're over there in Switzerland trying to split an atom to find the God particle when God has already revealed himself not only in this world word but he has revealed himself in all of creation. And if we've got to split an atom to find out whether God is real when we are blind to the reality of his creation and the creator all around us, do you realize how blind we really are as human beings? But this is why men cover over and reject the truth and the authority of the Bible. The whole case of the Bible is that God is searching for man and that God has revealed himself to man because man by searching cannot find God. 
That is the Bible's fundamental proposition. When men pick and choose what they will and will not believe about God and his word, they are choosing human reason over divine revelation. Reformation or revival will never come until men begin to choose the revelation of God over the reason of man and, and until they choose divine truth over convenient and popular lies. And I'm not talking about people out in the world who are blind, who do not know God. I'm talking about the church, the people who profess to know God. The third thing they like to cover up is the sinfulness of man and the wrath of God. Sinful man is under the wrath of God. But we don't like to talk about that because we don't like to talk about sin because it's too uncomfortable and we certainly don't like to talk about wrath because that just is a real downer. What we would rather do is come to church and never talk about sin and never talk about wrath and pretend like sin doesn't exist and wrath doesn't exist. And we can live in that fantasy land for a while, but you know what? The Bible says one day God is going to come back to this earth. Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth and he is going to judge this world. The Bible says every one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account. Now the good news is if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have been born again, if you are trusting Jesus, Jesus took the wrath for your sin and my sin. But for those who have rejected God, who are not in Christ, there is a day coming when the wrath of God will be made manifest on a world that has rejected him. And we can deny that. We can pretend like that's not real. We can sing songs and visualize unicorns all day long, but it's not going to change the reality and what should the church of God do? Pretend like that doesn't exist? Or should we preach the gospel? And part of the gospel is the reality of our sin and our sinfulness and the wrath of God. Because the good news is in Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from that. Not because we deserve to be, but because God chose to deliver us in Jesus Christ. This is what we are seeing so prevalent in our culture and in the church today. A denial of sin and a denial of God's wrath upon sin. This is not a new phenomenon, but something man has done since the beginning. We can go back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned and they disobeyed God and ate the fruit. What did they do? The Bible says they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. So what has man been trying to do from the beginning? Cover up his sin. And when the sin was exposed, what did Adam do? He didn't take responsibility for his sin. He threw his wife, Eve, under the bus and said, it's this woman you gave me. And there's the picture of the first Adam in stark contrast to the last Adam, Jesus Christ, because when the last Adam, Jesus Christ, came, he did what the first Adam did not do. What the first Adam should have done was say, God, 
It's my responsibility. I had dominion. I had authority. I allowed the serpent to come in. I stood right there while my wife talked to the serpent, lusted after the fruit, and I did nothing to stop her. Don't punish her. Don't let death come to her, but instead let it come to me. But Adam, the first Adam, didn't do that. But when Jesus Christ, the last Adam, came, that's exactly what he did. He said, Father, don't let death come to my bride, but let death come to me instead. The difference between those two Adams is the first Adam absolutely deserved the wrath of God. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, in no way, shape, or form deserved God's wrath to fall on him. But he took the wrath of God so that his bride could live. Who is his bride? It is everyone who is in Christ, who is born again, who is trusting in Jesus. Don't think sin is not real. Don't think the wrath of God is not real. They are real. And the world will feel the wrath of a just God one day. But the bride of Christ, the people of God, will not because our bridegroom, our husband, our elder brother has taken in himself the wrath of God for us. That's good news. We will know revival has come when we see men feel their sin and confess their sin and repent before God. Sinful men hide their sin because they know that the light of God's truth will expose their sin. When revival and reformation come, men won't be hiding and, and covering their sin. They will be confessing their sin and running to Jesus and repenting. Digging again the wells is the work of the church. The church knows the truth and must do the work of digging out the wells to allow the water to once again flow. The problem is nothing new. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of this very sin in his day as he warned of impending judgment due to the rejection of God and his truth by the people of Judah. Listen to the words of the prophet spoken 2,500 years ago and hear how they apply to us today. Jeremiah 2, 11 and 13. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water." Men have rejected the fountain of living waters and have hewn for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Men are dying of thirst, trying to drink out of broken cisterns, all the while the fountain of living waters has an endless supply. The church has compromised. The people of God have rejected the fountain of living waters and tried to make for themselves cisterns and sources of water that will not hold and will not satisfy and they cannot sustain life. These are the false doctrines that have become so popular today such as you can be your own God and determine for yourself what you will be. 
You can determine your own truth and dictate your own pursuit of that truth and make yourself the center of that truth. God's word is just another tool for you to use in your pursuit of your own truth. But it is not absolutely true. Therefore, you can reason for yourself what is true and what is not true. And you can apply those things that you wish to apply and you can ignore those things you wish to ignore because you are the master and the determinant of what is true. Not a Bible, not some God, certainly not some church or some preacher. You can be assured that God is love and there is no wrath in him. This is the lie that we are telling men today. Sin is not who you are, but something you can be, that can be managed and minimized. Something that God takes notice of no more. That's the lie we want to believe, but it is a lie. These are the old lies men want to believe are true, but they are not true. God is sovereign and transcendent and active in the church and in the lives of men. He is not willfully ignorant or disengaged or passive. He is calling men to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. God is the source of all truth and that truth is revealed to us in his word, the Bible. We have no luxury and we have no right to change his truth or his word into what we desire it to be. God is a just judge and his wrath is against all sin and all those who practice it. His hatred for sin is so great that he gave his only begotten son to eradicate it in the lives of his people. When we minimize sin, we minimize the death of Jesus. God's only son who died to take away our sin. Therefore, since we are no longer darkness, but light in the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, let us walk as children of light. Let us worship the sovereign Lord. Let us obey his holy word. Let us thank him that he has delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. So in doing that, we must dig again the wells, the wells of our fathers. We must remove the dirt and the rubbish, the false doctrines and the lies that deceive and blind. We must uncover and unstop the wells so that the water of God will flow again in the church. And as the water flows in the church, it will sustain the church and equip the church to be salt and light to the world around us for the glory of God the Father. So I encourage you to prepare now to come to the table of the Lord. And as you do, to trust in Jesus and ask God to prepare you for the work ahead, the work of digging wells. Come to the table, church. Let's stand. We have not because we ask not, and when we ask, we ask amiss, seeking our own pleasure and our own selfish motives. That's what the writer of James tells us. 
So I charge you to ask in faith for God to equip you for this difficult work of digging again the wells. Ask and he will. Ask him to fill you with his joy in doing this work of uncovering the source of life. Our work is to uncover the truth that has been covered over by sinful men. Our work is to dig again and let flow into the church the truth of who God is and all his transcendent sovereignty that we would uncover the truth of his holy inspired word that has been revealed to us by his Holy Spirit and that we would uncover the truth of his wrath to come and his final judgment of sinful man that we have been delivered from as we trust in Jesus Christ. We must do this because this is the only way for sinful man, for any man to be set free. It is to know the truth. And if the church is not preaching truth, how will men hear it? How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. We are charged to preach the gospel of peace, which is the gospel of Christ, the truth, and no other. Let us dig again the wells in our own hearts and let the truth flow. And let us and let our world be changed. Amen.